Exploring how we can transform our communities in the 21st century with the support of St. Ives Chambers, RHE Global, and me learning. Welcome. This is the Community Safety Podcast with your host, Jim Nixon. Today, the Community Safety Podcast turns its attention again to antisocial behaviour. Antisocial behaviour causes a lot of issues within our communities in the UK. And my guest today has spent a number of years tackling antisocial behaviour, particularly in the Manchester area. He worked for the local authority there and then went on to form his own charity called Mancunian Way. Please take a listen to a snippet of today's interview. This was one of my criticisms when I worked in the council was if we ever had a problem somewhere with young people with antisocial behaviour, the first port call was, right, football. Let's send some football coaches down in the park. And I would say, well, that's fine. And I don't, no, not, I don't disagree with that. But that's called entertainment. They can play football for two hours. But we've not challenged any of their ideas. We've not challenged their behaviour. We've not challenged their, you know, the myths and understandings that they may have. We've, we've not educated them. We've just taught them how to play football a bit better. So that's not going to solve your antisocial behaviour problems. We've just entertained them for two hours. And the second that football stops, they revert back to what they were before, which was antisocial. So sometimes just keeping kids busy isn't the answer. Because the second you stop it or you pull out of an area because there's no money anymore now, everything goes back to normal. It's now time for the Community Safety Podcast. Welcome to the Community Safety Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Nixon, and I've been working in community safety for over 25 years. This podcast will explore how we can transform communities in the 21st century. I'm delighted to introduce today's guest as Nick Buckley, MBE. Nick worked for Manchester City Council as a Youth Intervention Officer and Community Safety Coordinator. In 2011, Nick's role was terminated by the City Council due to budget cuts. He decided to take his severance pay and use it to set up a ta- charity called Mancunian Way, which works to reduce antisocial behaviour via prevention and intervention. In 2015, the charity was recognised as Community Project of the, of the Year. Nick, welcome to the Community Safety Podcast. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Do you know, I was just thinking the other day, we've actually been talking on and off, you know, via social media or sort of on the phone and that, probably for a number of years now, um, yeah. going back to when I was in the police service. But um, we just never kind of got around to meeting up and actually me coming up to Manchester and seeing how the project works. So I'm really glad that we finally managed to get a chat sorted out. No, me too. And I'm really impressed with these, this podcast because these are the conversations we need to have. And you've had some excellent guests on up to now. Thanks, Nick. Well, you're no different to that. You're a fantastic guest, very high profile. And uh, this is just a brilliant opportunity for us to kind of explore an area that we're both very, very passionate about. Um, I always start, as you know, with my guests being a, a regular listener. I like to know a little bit about their background. And I know a little bit about your background in Manchester in Longsight when you were growing up. So can we just ask you know just ask you about that growing up period for you um i presume in manchester kind of 70s 80s yep yep it was 70s 80s um typical lad off a council estate in south manchester um the anton estate notorious for drugs guns crime it's worse now than it was 
obviously, um, 30, 40 years ago when I lived there. Single parent household, no father, never knew my father. Um, lived with my grandparents, my mum and my sister. And I went to a failing school. My school was terrible. Um, teachers worked there who couldn't get a job anywhere else. They closed down the school the year after I left because it was that bad. Teacher got stabbed 42 times in the chest at my school. Teachers got sexually assaulted. Growing up on the streets um, of my estate was tough. I wasn't a tough kid. I kept out. I kept away from the tough kids because I may have grown up in a council estate, but I, I'm no hard nut. Um, but at the time when you're growing up, it's normal. That, 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 that's life for you. That, that's all you know. I never grew up thinking I was poor, even though I was. I never grew up thinking I was disadvantaged, even though I was. Even though I was physically disadvantaged because I had a really bad stutter all the way up to being about 13, which was horrendous at school. Um, bullied for that. Um, but that's just life and you get over those things and you take the bad with the smooth. And I went to college because I was clever enough to go to college, got a place at university, decided not to go because what the hell was I going to university for? I had no idea, so I thought, well, I'm not going. And in those days, it was completely free. The government would have paid me to go because I was a poor kid. Um, I went traveling around the world, that opened my eyes up. I saw different countries, different people. And that was my journey then to beginning to see and think how lucky we are to live in this country. If we think we've got it bad here, that just means you've never been anywhere else in the world. Absolutely. I mean, I went to uh, to India last year before all the COVID sort of kicked in. And boy, you know, that's a different way of living altogether, isn't it, Nick? You know, yeah. you know talk about third world country, you know, and these people are living off potentially, you know, scraps, you know, they're, they're earning minimal wage and like proper minimal wage. We are very lucky in the UK, I think, you know, despite everything that's been thrown at us over the last 12 months and so, you know, you're absolutely bang on there. I was going to ask you the question about your stutter and obviously that is a massive thing for a kid growing up, you know, and I just wondered how you overcome that. I overcame it by being the first person in the group to laugh at me. I, I was the, I'm always the first person to take the mickey out of me. And the second you do that, you take the power away from everybody else. Because what's the point of ripping into somebody who's already ripping into themselves? There's no fun in that. And that's how I, well, I like to think that's how I developed a really good sense of humour. Other people can judge if I'm funny or not. Um, but that was my coping mechanism, to be the first to always joke about myself. So you basically took the power away from the bully? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. You said obviously you weren't sort of, you grew up on a tough estate, but you kept away from it. But did that kind of upbringing sort of open your eyes up to the world? Yeah, and I think that's why I ended up in the career that I've ended up in. Um, I wasted my teens and my 20s. I wasted those decades. Especially in my 20s when I should have been achieving something, I was basically trying to be a millionaire. And I got to my early 30s and surprisingly, I wasn't a millionaire. And I was really dealing, I was always looking for that one deal. I never wanted to work hard, I always wanted to be lucky once and make it. And that's part of my upbringing, that, you know, that wasn't instilled in me 
that wasn't instilled in the communities I came from where you work hard and then you've awarded at the end. It's always instant gratification where I come from. And I fell into that a little, well, quite a lot actually. Um, but then when I started in my early 30s, started working with young people for the council, I got a job at the council, Manchester Council, um, started working with young people around crime and disorder and antisocial behaviour. I suddenly found something, not that I was good at, that I was excellent at. And the reason was I came from the same streets as those young people. So I wasn't a 24-year-old, pretty, Oxford-educated, middle-class, white woman going, oh, it's a shame for you, isn't it? Oh, you've got no dad. Oh, you live on this council estate in your school. Oh, I feel really sorry for you. And it's not your fault. It's not your fault you keep breaking your neighbour's windows. It's not your fault. It's society's fault. And I was the complete opposite, and there. It is your fault. And don't lie to me, because I know you're lying. Because I've been there, I've done that. And I know you're making excuses to me. And worst of all, you're making excuses to yourself. Because I know that you're not stupid. You don't believe anything you're telling me now, do you? And you can see their eyes opening up going, he's not like that woman I was speaking to last week who believed everything I said. He's not having any of this. And I'm going, look at your mum's face. Can you see your mum crying? You've done that to your mum. And I was, I was tough love. And I wasn't taking excuses and rubbish excuses of people. I was saying to them, now it's called Jordan Peterson effect. But I was doing this 20 years ago. I'm saying, take some responsibility for your life, mate. And for your mum and your little sister. Because if this carries on and your behaviour gets worse, we're going to evict you. And do you know what that means? That means we're going to kick you and your family out of your house. Where's your sister going to live? Where's your mum going to live? And it's all your fault. Is this what you want? Because this is what you're going to do to your family. And no one loves you in this world like your mum loves you. And you need to start protecting your mum and doing things to make your mum's life better. Because she doesn't want to sit here listening to this. You need to protect your mum and work hard for your mum and work hard so you get a better life. And that's that was my job for three, four years was making sure young people understood that their actions have consequences. And if they want help, I'm here to help you, mate. I'm here to get you that job. You know, I'm, if you've got anger issues, if you've got cannabis issues, let's get you some help. But don't tell me that you didn't do anything. Don't tell me there's nothing you can do about any of this because we're not having it. It's, it's really funny listening to you do, do just say that because that's it was almost like a mirror image of me when I was in the police service with the kids that we used to deal with. And don't get me wrong, Nick, you know, I'm exactly the same as you. I want to help as many kids, and I know you've helped many kids. But I think I had the same kind of view on it, really, that, you know, yeah, kids are disadvantaged, but they have got to take some responsibility. And when we started to work with kids and we started to work with the families and we did that regularly and it was kind of a, a sustained kind of relationship, as you probably saw, you start to see results, don't you? Yeah. Children are programmed to want to please adults. They're genetically programmed because if they didn't, they would starve to death because parents wouldn't feed them. So they're programmed. It's about tapping into that. And it's about giving them rewards when they need rewards because that's great behaviour. So I'm going to praise that. But this is bad behaviour. So I'm going to tell you this was bad behaviour. 
and eventually over time they start to understand that positive praise is a lot better for them psychologically than negative attention so they start craving that positive attention and they start doing what they need to do knowing you'll be happy and same with the yeah. parents the amount of parents you know i would say to them we're here to help you we're not here to punish you and we're not here to point fingers because bringing children up's hard work we're here to help you and we want to make your job easier and i've not, i think i've only met one parent out of i mean we're talking nearly ten thousand when i work for the council i only met one person who said i don't care even even the drug addict mum who was prostituting herself as well said to me i want better for my child but i just don't know how to do it i don't know how to deliver a better life for him but i wanted him to have a better life than me i just i just don't know how to do it can you help me and that's what you do with parents you tap into their natural instinct of wanting the best for their children because we all want our children to do better than we've done so it's not having a go with the parents it's about tapping into that natural instinct and working with them because if they're on your side you're halfway there yeah i mean that was how we got the success with ours nick to be honest with you it was by it was getting the buying from the parents and like you rightly say i haven't met many parents in my time you know that just didn't care you know yeah they are out there don't get me wrong but the majority like you said they want the best for their kids they want them to do better um so you know you saying that to me you know just resonates with me so so much and you know when we worked on a number of kids over a period as i know you've done with mancunian way as well you know we reduced asb that was like youth related by about 70 percent, and that was because you know we showed that tough love but we got kids working in the right positive way yeah that's one of the big mistakes from genetic youth work is many youth workers are far too left-wing far too pink and fluffy and they want to be friends with young people and not all youth workers and not all organizations i'm making a generalization here but you know the, the, the i'd say the majority you know over 50 percent and you can't be young people don't need any more friends they have friends what they need is advice and guidance and boundaries and a good youth worker will create those boundaries and give that advice and guidance in a friendly informal manner and it's working on the streets is a real skill i was okay at it i wasn't great i was okay but i employ people who are fantastic at it and it's a natural born ability to be able to walk up to a group of kids in the park 10 o'clock on a friday night in the rain they've all got the hoods up to walk up to them and in 30 seconds have them laughing and joking is a skill it's a skill set that because that's what you need to do to break down those barriers and get them talking to you because if you don't you freak them all out and you've lost them forever if you freak them out they just think you're some sort of weird or pedo do the thing i've noticed nick as well is that i think sometimes as well when we're trying to sort of divert young people we kind of sort of give them sometimes what they don't really want like i sort of i've said recently you know it's all a lot of stuff we give them sometimes you know it's all sport related well you know and i know not every kid wants to do sport i know a lot of kids if not all kids have got a, a talent but we need to tap into that and i think one of the things that sometimes we forget is actually asking them what they want to do have you, have you found that to a certain extent i've also found asking young people that they don't know what they want either 
So um, th there is a judgment call, and we, we need to give them choices because one day they may want to play sports, the next day they may not be in the mood for sports. So what do you do then? And then when you're playing sports, this was one of my criticisms when I worked in the council was if we ever had a problem somewhere with young people with antisocial behaviour, the first port call was, right, football. Let's send some football coaches down in the park. And I would say, well, that's fine. And I don't, no, not, I don't disagree with that. But that's called entertainment. They can play football for two hours. But we've not challenged any of their ideas. We've not challenged their behaviour. We've not challenged their, you know, the myths and understandings that they may have. We've, we've not educated them. We've just taught them how to play football a bit better. So that's not going to solve your antisocial behaviour problems. We've just entertained them for two hours. And the second that football stops, they revert back to what they were before, which was antisocial. So sometimes just keeping kids busy isn't the answer. Because the second you stop it or you pull out of an area because there's no money anymore now, everything goes back to normal. So what you do in an area has to, the main aim has to be about changing behaviour and changing perceptions of those young people. How you do that is with tools. Football may be the tool, but football isn't the answer. Yeah, I agree. I think you're absolutely right. And I've I've said a lot, you know, with areas, when you go in there, you, like you just touched on, you go in, you spend a load of cash, and then you all walk away. And it, for me, my experience, it kind of just goes back to how it was very, very quickly. Um, it kind of moves me on to my next point, really, in terms of, Obviously, you you were made redundant um, by Manchester Council. You clearly had been kind of um, harvesting this idea about Mancunian Way. Um, tell me about how that all came about. It came out the blue. So this wasn't like me thinking for years and years, this is what I will do one day. I'd been self-employed. I'd set businesses up. And I decided you know, a few decades before that I'm never doing it again because it's hard work. And I'm tired of working for years and months with no money. And working 70 hour weeks and not having paid holidays and never turning your mind off because you're always thinking what needs to be so i decided i didn't want i didn't want that that's why i got a job with the council um but what happened was austerity hit all the councils got huge budget cuts manchester's lost something like 55 percent of its budget so i mean they had big choices to make so i don't blame the council but my job went my team's job went they couldn't afford any more prevention early intervention work it was just one of those things so i had a choice i could either stay because they had an no redundancy policy i could stay they offered me a job in healthy eating and elections and i knew i didn't want to do any of that so i'm going to stick around take my wages for another six months get depressed and i'm going to walk away anyway because i can't do a job i don't want to do or there's money on the table to take voluntary redundancy and I could give it a go. I could set some up because I've always been saying for a decade, I could do this work better if the council untied my hands because a big organisation full of red tape, you can do this, you can't do this, you can do that. And I was always saying, if you could cut this tape off my hands, I could have some real big success here. So I decided to put my money where my mouth was and I said, right, no, I'll leave, I'll take the money and I'll carry on this work and I'll do it better. And let's see, let's see if I was all mouth for all those years complaining that we could do it better. Let, let's see if I can. And I did. And I was correct. And we hit the ground running. Had almost immediate success. And we've won a, nearly a dozen awards, some national, some off the police. And the work we're doing now, 
is really been fine-tuned over the last decade. So let me give you an example. So when I worked for the council, I remember this problem in East Manchester, we had kids drinking in a local park. And I was a youth intervention officer, which meant I could work with anybody under 18 because the class is children. We had five young people, three of them were 18, two of them were 18, three of them were 17. I was only allowed to speak to the three 17 year olds because the other two were adults. So my answer was, who do you think's buying the alcohol? It's the 18 year olds because they've got ID. I want to speak to them. And they'll live at home with their parents. Their parents don't think they're adults, not at 18. So I'd like to speak to their parents and say to their parents, if we catch your son buying alcohol and giving it to underage, he'll be coming home with a criminal record and a fine. And my boss was like, no, you're not allowed to speak to them because they're 18. And that was some of the silliness we had to work around where we Mancunian way. It'd be like, if you're 74 years old sat in that park, we're going to work with you. If you're in the area, we'll work with you and we'll do whatever needs to be done to improve your life and to improve the life of the community. And it's about getting away from this box-ticking, pigeonholing people. You're the wrong postcode. I know you're a kid in this park, but you live four miles away, so therefore we can't work with you because you've got the wrong postcode. And these were the things I had to put up with at the council because it was all connected to funding. So we have none of that in Mancunian way. Um, and how how did it start, Nick, in terms of ge ge you know, geography? Did you start sort of in one particular area or did you kind of cover the majority of Manchester from the start? So we, we covered the city of Manchester from the start because that was my old area. So I knew where the project had been cancelled from and I got my team to go straight into those areas because I knew there was a need and I knew those areas really well. So that's how we started. Um, the first couple of years, the council and the police, surprisingly, didn't even want to speak to me. Um, considering I just left them, these were my former bosses and colleagues, but the official line from the council was, we've cancelled these projects, not because of funding, but because we don't want them anymore. So if we don't want them, we can't work with you doing them, because then that looks like we cancelled them for funding reasons. It was all this political spin, and they cancelled them for money reasons, because they lost half the money. So they didn't, they didn't want to look like they were taking freebies after they'd got rid of staff. Silliness. So they didn't want to work with me for the first couple of years. But then we became more and more successful. And then eventually, there was a knock on my door at my office. And it was the council saying, hi, can we work with you? And that was when we started working with the police and the council again. And then from that, we started working with different housing associations and different areas of Greater Manchester. And they saw what we were doing in Manchester and saying, can you come to Salford? Can you come to Rochdale? Can you come to Tyneside? And then we started expanding and we started working. We've worked in nine of the 10 brothers of Greater Manchester. There's only Wigan we've never worked. It's fantastic. How did you, I know you funded some of it from your severance pay, but were you able to get some external funding for the first couple of years prior to the council kind of helping out? For the first year, no. So the first year, I funded everything with my redundancy and my savings. So I put, I put in 27 grand. I put in every penny I had. And I worked for free for the first two years. So my, I put a big personal commitment. And I'm not, I don't want praise for that. And I'm not saying, oh, woe well, me. I did it because my reputation was on the line. I told people I could do this. I told people I could do this better. And 
I needed to prove I was correct. My girlfriend even talks now about, my girlfriend said I spat my dummy out. She said, you left the council, you took the money and you went, I'm going to do this better. You spat your dummy out. You walked away from a really good paid middle manager's job. And she said, you should have stayed. But that's just not me. Life's too short to do something you don't want to do. So I funded it for the first, completely for the first year. Then we got some little bit of lottery funding. We got some housing associations on board, um, paying us to work in their areas. And things just started to grow naturally. We, from, from the day one up to now, we've never had any money problems. It's brilliant. I mean, it's one of the big issues, isn't it, when you do a success... I ran a successful um, radio project in a place called Smedic in the West Mids when I was in the police. And the funding just dried up and we just struggled to get more funding and in the end it kind of stopped. Mm. But it's just it's just brilliant to see that you've you know, started something in 2011 and you're still going strong to this day. You know, it's just, it's commendable and it's great to see that you haven't had those financial problems that a lot of people sort of face. The main reason why we've never had any funding problems is because I've worked full time on it. I have been the person who's been writing hundreds and hundreds of grant applications where 90% of them get rejected and you get disheartened, but you wake up next day, you've got to write some more. I'm the one knocking on the doors of housing associations saying, you've got this problem, we can come in, we can do it. You know, we'll do it session by session. If we're rubbish, don't pay us. So we'll take the chance because we know what we do is quality. We know you'll have us back. Um, I'm the one who was talking to businesses and getting businesses on board, trying to be charity of the year, getting businesses to do events and raising money for us. So for me, it was a full-time job raising that money. And what kept me going was seeing the results on the streets. So when, you know, you're talking to your staff and you know, my staff are better than me working on the streets, so I let them do that now. So when your staff are telling you about the 12-year-old girl who's been, who's got seven boyfriends and they're, all, and they're all sexually active with her, it's like, right, this is why I'm raising this money because these projects are needed on those streets because we've just saved this girl now. Years and years are being used you know, when we've got, you know, a young person in the city centre um, who was basically selling himself. And it's like, well, no, that's why we're on those streets to make sure that young people are safe. And if young people are making the wrong choices and are damaged and feel that's the only way they can get attention, no, no, we're on there for that. And when we're working over areas and we've got 16, 17 year olds and we finally get them a job and now they're not selling cannabis on little mountain bikes, risk of being stabbed, that's why I'm raising this money. That's why I'm knocking on those doors. That's why I'm taking those rejections. And it's really, you know, when you get grant after grant after grant rejection, it doesn't have this art in you. But when I hear these stories off my staff, it's like, no, carry on. And that's why we've been financially successful. It's not easy out there by any means. No, it's that persistence, isn't it? It's it's having that passion and that persistence to just keep keep knocking on those doors. Because you know yourself, if you keep doing it, you are going to get a level of success, aren't you? Yep, yep, absolutely. Hi, my name's Jim Nixon, and I've been working in antisocial behaviour for a number of years. One of the big issues facing antisocial behaviour professionals is how we effectively tackle noise complaints, and you need good tools to be able to do this. One tool that I would highly recommend is the Noise app. I've effectively used the Noise app whilst working in the housing sector and the local authority sector. And it, for me, it's the go-to tool. 
There's over 330 subscribing local authorities and housing associations in the UK currently using the Noise app. The Noise app was designed to relay precise information compared to traditional methods. I couldn't run an ASB team without the Noise app now. So if you want more information about the Noise app for a free trial, then contact the team on info at thenoiseapp.com today. In terms of the project, Nick, you know, you've talked a lot today, and I know we've touched on it a little bit, but what makes, appreciate the red tape issues, but what makes you and Mancunian Way so different to some of the stuff that's out there? You know, what makes you unique? I think it's a band background, so where I've come from, understanding the streets, understanding those young people, understanding that if someone like me would have met me at 10, 11, 12 year old, old time, when I was 12 years old, I'd, I'd have had a better life. I'd have had a more successful life because they may have got me onto that path sooner than me waiting till I was in my early 30s to do it myself. So there's that part of it. Another part of it is my professional background. So I come from crime and disorder. I come from reducing antisocial behavior, reducing crime. I'm not a youth worker. I've never been a youth worker. So youth workers' mentality is always the young person comes first. This is all young person-centred. It's what they want, what makes them feel good. Um, and I come from community-focused. I want what's best for the community. Because if we can improve the community, then the community will improve the lives of lots of young people, not just the one. So I come from, I come from a, a different... We all want the same thing. I just come at a, a different angle. So you're looking more at the holistic approach, aren't you? You're looking yes. at, you know, that that kind of whole community kind of situation. And I totally, I, I totally agree with that. That's exactly how I do it, and that's exactly what I hundred percent believe in. Because I think if you just concentrate on, you know, one or two individuals, yes, you might make some inroads with them. But like we've said already, you know, it just sort of goes back to how it was quite quickly, doesn't it? It does, and even if you have success with those two individuals. There's more of them coming through the pipeline. So you've not changed anything. You've changed those two lives, which is fantastic. And we need to change lives. But unless your overarching plan stops a conveyor belt of young people making the wrong choices, then we have these issues forever. That's why I, you know, and I say to people, we need to stop doing things to people. And we need to empower communities so they can improve the lives of their own young people and police their own communities. That's how we have long-term sustainable change. Along the way, we need to work with individuals and change individuals. And the best example of that is some of the late teenagers we work with. And you know, we'll be working with them for a couple of months, they're not interested, we chat for a little, you know, 10 minutes, then they've had enough of us and we go on our way. But we break them down slowly over time. And eventually one of them will say, I really need a job. I'm just sick of having no money. I'm sick of this, I'm sick of that. And we help them get a job and all their friends laugh at them while we're working with them and, you know, saying, oh, no, we're gangsters, we're drug dealers. on it's like, well, you're on mountain bikes, mate. You're not a drug dealer. Drug dealers are not, on, you know, 15-year-old mountain bikes. You know, you, you, just, you sell a bit of cannabis. So we'll get one of them a job and then the next month he'll have some money. He'll have, you know, some new shoes, new trainers, a new bike, new clothes. And he goes, yeah, I paid for all this at my monthly wage and I've not got stabbed. I don't have to worry about being arrested. And then somebody else will go, all right, Nick, uh, any chance you can get me a job as well? And he whispers it. 
and then we'll help him or get him a job. And by the time you've got him a job, the rest of the crew then are going, Nick, can you get me a job? No one's laughing anymore now. No one's whispering because they've seen you improve their friend's life and their friend seems to be getting on better and going on holiday, may have met a girlfriend now and got some money. And they're going, I want some of that because that's real life. Before I was playing gangster. I had nothing, but I was playing gangster. I want a bit of that. I want a relationship with a girl where I can take her to Nando's. I want to be able to go to Spain, to Benidorm on a holiday with my mates. Now that's life, that's living, not dreaming. And that's some of the changes you can make. But you, you, again, you start that with the one person, but walking away from the group because you've got one person isn't good enough. You start chipping away. And once you, once you hit that level, it might be two people, three people, the group can see the change and they want change then as well. And that's, that's our philosophy. I, you know, also when you talk about you know these gangsters on the on the bikes and what have you, you know I've talked about this to a few guests on the show now, you know, and they've sort of said it's not a glamorous life, you know. I think slowly but surely these kids can see that they're just being used, you know, to actually fund the big boys and the big girls, and you know they're just very small pawns in a massive, massive machine, aren't they? They are, but from their point of view. At least I'm in the game. At least I've got purpose. At least I'm useful. At least somebody is giving me some responsibility to sell something. And I'm responsible for taking the money and handing most of it back and I keep a bit myself. They're young people. They're missing their direction in life. And this is this is the only direction they can see. This is the only, this is the only option. Most of them don't want to be there really. But... It's that or nothing, and we wonder why they take that. And we need, as a society, and this is what we need to do in schools as well, because a lot of these young people have failed school. And that's not necessarily the school's fault, but we know they're failing in school. They've been kicked out, they've improved, and we don't give them any alternatives. Our education system is a one-size-fits-all. So you come into the school, especially secondary school, you, you, most people can cope in primary school because as you get older, and more troubled, you're becoming more top of the tree. Where when you get to secondary school, all of a sudden you've gone from a, a, a big fish in a small pond, and now you're a tiny fish in a huge pond. And most, especially boys, who are going to fail, fail in all, that first term of secondary school. We need to be giving them options. We need to be saying to them, you, we know you're not going to pass your GCSEs. We know that. So what's the point of having you here for five years, torturing you every day? Dragging you in every day, making you feel more and more stupid, showing you that you're falling more and more behind every day, and then we wonder why you're violent and frustrated at society. We've just tortured you for five years, making you feel like an idiot. Those individuals we need to highlight and say, what do you want to do? Stay in this school if you want. I'm not forcing people to take anything they don't want to do. Stay here and do your GCSEs if you want to, or... We've got a whole new school system set up. That's a proper school, it's not a crew, where you're gonna learn how to use your hands, you're gonna do more stuff standing up, and we're gonna have an education that's right for you, and not force you to do this education that's not right for you. We don't give them any choices, and we wonder why they fail. And it's disgraceful, our one size fits all. Fails a small but significant amount of young boys. It comes back to what I was saying earlier, Nick. You know, 
we are a very rigid education system and as I said earlier, you know, lots of kids have got some amazing abilities, you know, just because you can't do algebra and you can't do, you know, an essay, it doesn't mean, like you said, that you can't be a master craftsman or, yes. or craftsperson. It's about, you know, tapping into those skills because, you know, yeah. people can earn good money plastering, people can earn good money bricklaying. It's finding those skills. It's like, I, I love what you've just said there about, you know, yeah, we're torturing kids, aren't we, you know, for like yes. five years and... No wonder they're angry with society, like you've just said, you know, because they're just so frustrated, aren't they? Every day we're saying to them, you're stupid. You're stu Why can't you get this? Everyone else gets it. Why can't you get this? You're stupid. And we wonder why. They're the, the angry when they leave at 15, 16. I'd be angry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't the best mate myself academically and it was really only sport that saved me, really. You know, I felt, you know, pretty stupid myself throughout the five years I was at school, you know, secondary school. But because I was good at athletics, it was my release, you know. Mm. I was going to do athletics. I was doing well across the country. So it was my release, really. So I suppose it was my compensation. That was my skill. That was my talent. So that gave me the confidence to believe in myself, you know, and gave me that kind of ability to then go on and get a job and have that confidence. But if you're not given that confidence and there's no outlet, you're just going to go, like you said, you're just going to go into, you know, certainly into being picked up by some of these dealers and that that are going to sort of infiltrate you and get you out there dealing for them, aren't you? The amount of primary school kids, I did a lot of work in primary schools as well. And I love primary schools. Primary schools are so noisy, full of energy, the children are screaming, running around. It's you know, if you're ever depressed, have a look at a primary school. It, and if that doesn't cheer you up, then you need to go to doctors. But the work I did in primary schools and some of these young boys, you know, I remember conversations with them about what do you want to do when you grow up? And it'd be I want to be a policeman, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a captain in the army, I want this, I want that, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna a common thing with I'm gonna buy my mum a house, that's what I'm gonna do. And then five years later, I'd see him in secondary school. And what do you want to do? Nothing. What, what are your dreams? Because you want to be, don't want to be anything. It's like, what have we done? And these are, these are the same children that I spoke, you know, five years later. What have we done to them that we've sucked all the energy and the dreams out of them? And I know we don't do it on purpose, and teachers work really hard. I'm not criticising teachers, I'm criticising the system, that we have a system, a schooling system, that is great for the majority of young people. Four out of five young people do well in school. I'm talking about the 18, 20%, where our one-size-fits-all just sucks the dreams out of them, their aspirations, and we leave them this vacant shell where, where the same person can ask them the same question several years later, and the answer is... I don't have any dreams. It's like, what have we done? How do you think we change it, Nick? We change it by having a really serious conversation about what what is what are schools for? What is our 21st education system for? Some people will say it's to explore education and we can read sonnets by Shakespeare and I'm going, yeah, that's all great for you and your kids that's fine if that's what some kids want to do but i wasn't one of those kids 
I'd rather have kids coming out of school who can read a set of instructions, follow them and understand them and complete them. That's a better skill. So we need to look at the one size fits all. Every neighborhood needs to have a different type of secondary school. So we have a normal secondary school and then we have a technical secondary school. Again, not a pro, nothing to do with behavior, but we say there's two schools your child can go to. And as a parent, you know, as a parent and child, you, you decide where you're going, just like you do now, what school you're going to. Have an open day, go and see, and let, let them decide. Do you want your child to do all the GCSEs and you know, all this all the way through to 15, 16? Or would you like him to go to this technical school where they can do work on how to be a plumber, customer service, working in hotels, computer programming, and they get to choose different modules and what they want to do. Self-employment, how to be an entrepreneur, how to do taxes, how to fill in self-assessment, all these things that we don't think about, but some of these young people may want to do. And that's what they choose to do. So this just isn't for so-called stupid kids. You may get bright academic kids going, I don't want to go to university. I want to run my own business. So therefore I want to go to the technical school because I want to know how to set up a, com a limited company. I want to understand customer service and stock control and we can teach these kids all these things, but give them and their parents the choice. I'm a big believer in choice. It's not for us to say to these kids, we want you to go to university. Who are we? Let them decide what they want to do. Let me give you an example. So many years ago, I was working with this girl in a youth club. She's a lovely girl. One of those people who you just meet and you just go, she's lovely, just a nice person, about 13 years old. And then we started working in her secondary school and we realised that she was never in class. She used to turn up at class, walk out politely, wander around the corridors for hours and hours because she'd fallen behind that much that she felt stupid sat in class. And it was a real shame and she ended up taking no exams, failing all of exams. And I bumped into her when she was 17. And at 17 years old, she was morbidly obese now and there was no spark in her she was always smiling she had shiny eyes and when i saw her at 17 she was just vacant and whatever we'd done to her we'd, we'd sucked everything out of her, her dreams that smile and i realized then if we could have got her to a different school because she wasn't academic she had very slight learning difficulties but if we got her to a different type of school who could have trained her to be a chambermaid work in a hotel working catering then she'd have left at 15 16 with qualifications in hospitality and she'd have got any job in manchester city center because all those places in the city center they're crying out for customer service skills for nice people and she was one of them and she could have had a job for life but instead we tortured her for five years made her overeat and now she'll probably never work for the rest of her life because there's nothing she can do. She's got no confidence and, and, you know, and she's that heavy now she can hardly walk. But her life outcome could have been so much different if we would have had a different choice of school for her. And I've got dozens of examples like this where we just fail people. Yeah, I, I, all my kids have, have gone on to do apprenticeships, Nick, you know, and they never ever had those aspirations because they were more sort of practically minded than they were, you know, and there was never any pressure from us, you know, as parents to push them down that university route. But all three of them, you know, they're doing 
really well for themselves now in their 20s. And I think I've always said that, you know, that people, you said it early in the conversation, kids need choices, don't they? You know, they need, we need to give them the choices to a point where we can hone into their skills better, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've got to a stage now where I actually tell young people not to go to university. I tell people now, only go to university if the job you want to do depends on it. If you want to be a doctor, a solicitor, you know, you need a specific degree to do those jobs. And there'll be other jobs out there as well. Then go to university. But if you don't know what you're going to do, and or your job you want to do doesn't require a degree, then do not go to university. Because all you're going to do is waste four years of your life and end up in 50, 60 grand's worth of debt, which is not really debt. It's more of a 9% tax. That's that's what it is. Um, but, but again, you don't need to be paying that. You don't need to waste four years of your life where you can be working and gaining experience. I employ people all the time. I'm looking at CVs all the time. I, I don't even look at degrees anymore now for the people who come through my door because a degree for me now is almost worthless because of the silly subjects you can do. They've been downgraded and you having a degree was special 50 years ago. It's run of the mill now. So, you, so I tell people all the time, don't do it unless you really need to. Yeah, I think, like you say, I think it's great if you want to be a doctor or you know something really specific like that. But uh, yeah, as, as I've said earlier, I'm, I'm a big believer in tapping into kids' practical skills as well. And like you've just said, getting them to earn money sooner and also not coming out of four years' worth of slog with a lot of debt in their, you know, in, in in their pocket sort of thing, or not in their pocket as the case may be. So I I, I totally yeah. agree with that. Yeah, I, I do think university's got a place, like you've just said, but I do think that there are other options that can be just as, if not more, effective. And what we need to do with universities is look at the courses, because lots of the courses are useless. Never should be a degree course. And what the government needs to do is look at the courses that actually contribute to society engineering and you know things like that um and doctors you know doctors courses nurse courses and what the government should do is subsidize those courses so instead of nine grand a year to study physics we should say our our country needs people who understand physics so we're going to pay half the course so that course is only four and a half grand a year if you want to do a course on beatles history well, you're going to pay all nine grand yourself because we don't need any experts in the Beatles. But for things that benefit society, the government should subsidise those courses. That's how we get people doing better courses. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we, it's something that really does need to be carefully looked at, you know, and I hope that, you know, in our lifetime that there is a bit of a review of this kind of structure and that we do start to see young people... Because you know, it's, it's a travesty when I hear stories like that you've just been saying about that young girl. You know, that, that just should not be happening, you know. If someone that's got so much potential in the right areas, you know, we shouldn't be failing kids like that. We really shouldn't. We should be giving them real opportunities. Um, because it, it just it's, it's really sad to think that that young woman will never work in her lifetime, isn't it? Yeah. We, 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 never, we never thought about her quality of life. We thought about lots of other things, but never her quality of life. She was never going to be a brain surgeon, but we wanted her to go down the same path as a kid who was going to be a brain surgeon. What we should have said to ourselves with, 
what we should have said to ourselves was she will have a better life for the next 50 years if we can give her some skills to work in a menial job she will have a better quality of life she'll be able to earn her own money which then generates your own self-respect and self-worth she'll meet friends at work and have a social life she might meet a future husband at work and have marriage and have children pay taxes now that's a quality of life but we didn't we judged her as a brain surgeon and we let her fail and it's, it's appalling i think it follows on to what we were talking about earlier this now nick you know we talked about earlier about empowering communities not just you know looking at specific individuals yes that's important but you know to make real inroads we need to empower communities and it might be that if, if communities are more empowered then some someone like that young girl you know could possibly be helped and to be put onto the right track how do you think we empower communities in the 21st century personal responsibility the first thing we need to stop doing is doing everything for everybody our welfare system needs looking at um, the whole thing is designed to keep people under the thumb of the state it's not it wasn't designed to do that but that's what it does so you know we, we tell we tell young women if you get pregnant and you don't have the father of the house living with you father of the child living with you we're going to give you more money so we're paying mothers to make poor decisions for their children with financial incentives we're saying to other people you're signing on universal credit now um, if you go get a job we're going to take so much money off you or if you I've, I've been unemployed I've signed on to the dole I've got personal experience if you make one change to your benefit claim and the whole thing turns upside down and then you don't have money for weeks your rent stops being paid you start getting letters off your housing saying we're going to evict you you get bailiff letters off the council tax saying you know we're going to take your possessions and you screw you're pulling your hair out going all i did was try to get a part-time job all i did was want someone to move into my house with me and split the bills the second you make a change the whole system falls apart and tries to punish you and the lesson out of that for many people is i'm on benefits now they're all sorted don't ever change anything stay the way you are and there's no incentives for those individuals to to you know to find work we make excuses for them all the time um and we, we need some tough loving communities and that starts with the young people and that starts with making sure they understand their personal responsibility and that's how they're going to be successful because they're not some of them are not learning that from home and we have got a welfare state problem where we expect the state to look after us and to do everything for us and if something goes wrong we turn to the state where what we should be doing is turning to ourselves and have own resilience and we say i'm going to fix this problem because i've worked for the state i've worked for government and believe me they do everything poorly you don't want the state interfering in your life i'm telling you because whatever they do they're going to make it worse you want the state out of your life and you want to make your own choices your own decisions and you want to create your own life and live it the way you want to live it and that's how we need to empower 
communities to think like that. Yeah, I do think that we do far too much for people. I've had these conversations with, uh, you know, um, friends and, you know, colleagues, and I do really feel that we, you know, we do, you know, pamper to some people, you know, a lot of people. And I don't think it does them any good in the long run, does it, Nick? You know, it just makes them, like you say, very self-reliant, and it's everybody else's problem apart from theirs, where actually they could empower themselves and, you know, actually get out there and change their own lives for, for themselves. It, it, it's, it's a type of discrimination because what we're saying to some people in, communi- in communities and in society is we don't think you're capable of looking after yourself. We think you're just like a big child and we think you're a little bit stupid as well. So what we're going to do as the state is we're, is we're going to babysit you. We're going to do everything for you. Here's some free money. Buy food. We don't trust you to pay your rent, so we're going to pay your rent directly. We don't trust you to figure out how to pay your council tax, so we're going to pay that for you directly. We don't think you're going to feed your children, so we're going to feed your children. Even during school holidays, we're going to feed them because we don't think you love your children enough and have the capabilities to put food on the table. And then we wonder why we have adults who, who don't know how to look after themselves and take care of the children and take care of their own lives and family. It's because slowly over decades, we've been chipping away at their personal responsibility and we've infantilized them. We just treat them like children. And it's an insult because I was one of those people on one of those estates living on welfare. And that's what they did to me. And it took me to my early 30s to realise that the only way for me to improve my life was, was down to me and stop playing the system and stop trying to get more out of the system. But that's what it teaches you. It's a game. And when you're in a game, you play the game to win. And what we need to do is change the game. The game now shouldn't be called welfare state. It should be called personal responsibility. I want to keep the welfare state, you know, before you get complaints like, oh, that idiot's talking about not giving them money and people starving on the streets. I'm not talking that type of silliness. But to have to have a 30, 40-year-old man in this country who's never worked living on benefits, and that's the best we can do for him and his quality of life. It's like, no, we need... We, we need to show people there's a better option out there. You still may be poor, but I'll tell you this from personal experience. It's better being poor and in charge of your own life and destiny than being poor and having the state looking after you. Because having the state look after you means you're always going to be in that position. Being poor and looking after yourself means you can always get things to a better level. And that's what I would always opt for. Yeah, I... I... I totally agree with what you're saying. I do think it has got a place. You know, there are, you know, people in this society that unfortunately can't work for whatever reason, and I totally, totally get that. But I think, like you just described there, you know, like the 30, 40-year-old man that's never worked, you know, I, I would think that those individuals, if they're playing the game, as you call it, they can't be 100% happy with their lot. Because, like you say, they're just stuck in that kind of, that rut then aren't they there's no real ambition there's no 
you know, forward thinking. They're just they're just stagnant, really, aren't they? They are, but again, I've been there. The benefit is I know what I'm getting and what to expect. So I know it's substandard. I know it's not very good. But I can put up with this. Now, the alternative is for me to take a chance. For me to rely on me. I don't trust me. I have no skills. I'm a nobody. Why would I trust me to make my life better? I'll probably make it worse. I'm better off staying where I am. That's the mentality we need to create. So basically, it comes back again to that education, doesn't it? And it comes back to that specific type of education that gives the skills and gives the confidence to be able to go out and make a name for yourself. Yep, and to have that pride. That belief. Yes. And you're not going to be, you know, you're not going to change the world. But I've seen that many people, young people and homeless people that I've worked with, who open their first pay packet. And what you see on their face is pride. They look in it, they see the money they've got. And it's never a lot. But suddenly, the shoulders go back. The chin goes up. I've earned this. This is mine. I'm a man now. Because I've earned this. I'm on my way. And that's what we need to instill in people. This, you get what you earn in life. You get what you deserve. That you're not a beggar. You're not sat there just taking handouts and pity. And wallowing in self-pity. You're you're a somebody. You know, you've got agency. You can be almost anything you want to be. And we suck it out of people. We really do. And all this start... And we suck it out of them for the, for the best reasons. What we do it, we suck it out and we call it compassion. And all this is start, you know, it's got to start early doors, hasn't it, Nick? You know, we talk a lot on here around, you know, I'm not saying we do anything for people, but early intervention and picking up on the signs and helping these kids by empowering them has got to be the way forward, I think. Um, because I think yeah. if we lose... I think you've, you've said before, you know, you leave it too late, you're not going to reverse that damage, are you? No, because it'll take too long and it's too expensive. So we need to be concentrating on primary schools now. That's where we need to start, with primary schools. We need every kid leaving primary school wanting to be an astronaut, wanting to be the prime minister. That's what we need to do. Um, We start young and we build from there. A whole generation of young people leaving primary school wanting just wanting anything that they've dreamt about. That's that's how we start the change. If we start working with 18, 19 year olds now, it, it it's not that it's too late, it's never too late. But the big investment needs to be younger, a lot younger. Yeah, absolutely, a lot, lot younger. Uh, uh, you're right, I mean, you know, I've talked to a guy called Paul Wormsley on this, who's an ex-criminal, uh, and we talk a lot about, you know, writing people in rather than writing people off. And I would never write a 19-year-old old off, but I think the point I'm trying to make is that it's a hell of a lot harder to do it at that age, um, you know, to try and get them back on track when they've gone down, say, that criminal route and they're in that system. It's so, so much harder, isn't it? Yeah, it's easier making sure that young person never goes off the right path in the first place. Absolutely. That's what we need to do, and that has two benefits. A, it's beneficial to the young person, 
because they don't have all that negative experiences of being off the wrong path, being arrested, causing problems, having self-doubt. So it's beneficial for them, but it's also benefit for the community because it means less victims because they've not been causing problems for a decade. They've not been burgling houses for a decade. It, it, it has benefits all around. And, and ultimately, you know, when more people are empowered, when we do have problems and we need the money to sort them out, we hopefully will have more money in the pot, you know, from a you know central government point of view and a local government point of view to actually be able to sort some of the problems out. Um, because at the moment, you know, like you said, you know, we've been in austerity for a long time. We've now had COVID. It's going to only get worse financially. Um, so we need more money coming in, don't we? And that's, a, you know, by empowering people, you get more money coming in in taxes. We do. We need to invest in the future instead of always firefighting. The average antisocial behaviour family in the UK costs up to a third of a million a year. When you add up benefits, use of services, police, court time, fire, when you add up everything, it, they reckon it, it could be up to a third of a million per family. So if we can work with those young people in that household to make sure they don't repeat the mistakes of their parents, we're saving millions for the future. That's why we need to invest now in those families to make sure we reap the rewards in the future. Yeah, and I also think, I think there's been a change now, isn't there, around the troubled families kind of name. And I've always been a little bit sort of concerned about the way that we label families like that. I think if you're going to try and empower people and empower families by labelling them like that, I think it's just initially setting them up to fail as well. So I'm hoping there's going to be a bit, you know, I know they've changed the name recently and there's going to be a bit more of a yeah. rethink, which I think is a positive step for me. Um, yeah. You know, certainly a positive step in the right direction. Talking about that, Nick, you know, partnership work, how important do you think partnership work is as well to kind of get communities back on track? Um, it depends what the person means by partnership work. I've seen enough partnership work to know it doesn't mean anything and it can be a tick in a box where you say, oh, we've worked with the police on this and we've worked with the housing on that. And what you really did was exactly what you wanted to do at the beginning and you pretended to work in partnership, you pretended to consult, but you did exactly what you wanted to do anyway. So that isn't partnership working. But when you get it right, and you know, 15 years ago, we, we, got, it re we got it really good in Manchester when I worked for the council, because I used to chair partnership meetings, um, and we had them running so smoothly that you could get things done. So you'd have a problem in the neighborhood with young people, and around the table, you'd have their housing manager sat there, the youth manager, uh, the fire service, social services, children's services. And you could have proper discussions about individuals and you'd all walk away with tasks. This is what I'm going to do by next week. And you'd feed it all in. Now, that's the sort of partnership working we need. But what happens is each agency has its own aim, has its own agenda because of all different agencies. And we're all, I mean, I'm guilty of this as well, running a charity. Sometimes we're all too busy doing what we need to do as opposed to taking a step back, looking at the bigger picture. And that's where I think the councils need to take that role back up again, because Manchester was really good at it. But again, funding cuts, that was, that's why my job went, because we stopped doing that. 
but having those overarching coordinators who would look at problems and then look at what resources we had and partners we had and start assigning tasks and looking at overarching plans was how you solve some of the big complicated problems otherwise you're just putting sticking plasters you know as a little charity now some of the issues we could be accused of putting sticking plasters on because it's going to come back next summer but as the council with their millions you know we could be looking at designing out problems in the environment or making sure that there's three youth clubs in the area and they're all open on thursday evening it's like well that's a bit silly isn't it can't we have them open tuesday wednesday thursday evening one each so the kids have got somewhere to go three nights a week instead of having to choose which one they want to go to on a, on a Thursday. So it has its place, but without a coordinator, without someone taking responsibility, sometimes, well, a lot of the time, the partnerships fail. Yeah, we've. Uh, I work up in Stoke for Stoke City Council, and we've just... Um... We've had a partnership guy that's been doing sort of the whole city, but what we've done now is we're doing exactly what you just talked about, where we've got um, one person for the south of the city, one person for the north, coordinating yeah. it all, proper plans, everybody responsible for the tasks, and it's really starting to gain momentum now. Um, yeah. And I'm really, really excited. You know, We've got a good partnership arrangement up in Stoke, and it's probably one of the strongest partnership arrangements I've ever come across. But this new introduction now, you know, I'm really quite optimistic for the future that we will start, regardless of the lack of funding, we will start to reduce some of the problems by the proper joined up work that we're doing. And like I've said before, you know, trying to kind of kick the egos out really and just making sure that everybody works together and does what they say they're going to do. Yeah, and, and and then is held responsible Absolutely. for that and held to account if they don't. Yes, and that's the key um, to it, isn't it? It's like, yeah, it sounds like that's going really well, and that's what we had in Manchester. So if you get it to that level, it does some great work. Yeah. And I can give you an example. I used to look after, I used to run the city centre, Manchester city centre, in terms of reducing crime and antisocial behaviour. Um, and we had a an aggressive beggar who was, who, who was a nightmare. And he assaulted some people and we got him in ASBO and we were banning him from the city centre. But then because we had a partnership working, and we had a meeting and he got raised on it and we were discussing his banning area, we had the NHS there and the NHS said, he's one of our clients and he gets his drug uh, prescriptions off us on a daily basis and his drug clinic is in the city centre. And it's like, ah, right, we're just about to ban him from the whole city centre. So we came to an arrangement where we altered the ASBO to make sure the streets he needed to walk down to get to his clinic and walk out again were taken out of his court order um, so he could keep his treatment. Because what is the point of punishing this man for his behaviour, which we're rightly doing, but then we're taking away the potential of his support and his medical help. So could we need him to have that if he's ever going to get better? So when you've got a good partnership, those things come to the front and then you can deal with them in a room quite easily. Nick, this has been a brilliant interview today. I really, really appreciate your time. One question I always ask my guests before we sort of wrap up is, any question I haven't asked you today that you wanted to me ask you during the interview? Um, not, not that I can think of. I've, I've really enjoyed the session. Thanks, Nick. I've really enjoyed it too. It's been absolutely fantastic. 
Um, obviously, we've mentioned Mancunian Way, and obviously, we've talked a lot about you today. How can people reach out to you? To reach out to me, I'm on all social media at Nick Buckley MBE, all one word. Um, drop me a message, have a chat with me, and I've got a book coming out in November all around personal responsibility and the work I've done on the streets. Oh, that's fantastic. I can't wait to uh, get a read of that, Nick. It sounds absolutely fantastic. Thanks again, mate. I really appreciate your time today on the Community Safety Podcast. Um, Thank you to our audience as well for listening again to this important podcast. Please like, rate, subscribe to the Community Safety Podcast. We really want to get our mission across to as many people as possible. Thank you for listening and look out for the next episode on the Community Safety Podcast. Please tell your friends, please tell your colleagues, and we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks very much. That was a really open interview with Nick Buckley from Mancunian Way. I've always said on this podcast, you know, that sometimes we're going to be a bit edgy and a bit out there, and I think today's interview very much was that. But I think it's so important that if we are going to change communities in the 21st century, we are going to save lives, then we have got to challenge the norm. And Nick certainly has some views that challenge the norm but I think it's really important that we get those views across to you. Thank you again so much for listening to the Community Safety Podcast. We really do appreciate your support. Please spread the message. Please tell your friends. Please tell your colleagues. If you can review, rate, and subscribe to the podcast, we would really appreciate it. And also don't forget our website, which is www.thecommunitysafetypodcast.co.uk. And we will catch you on the next episode. You've been listening to the Community Safety Podcast. With thanks for support from St. Ives Chambers, RHE Global and Me Learning. Join us again next time to help us explore how we can transform our communities in the 21st century. century. On the Community Safety Podcast with Jim Nixon. Jim Nixon.